This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 306 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Trisha Stavano. Now, Trisha is a 20-year veteran of the U.S. Army serving as a dietitian. She is an elite endurance athlete herself and now works for Sarah, which is a hydration company whose roots are in relief aid in the poor nations of the world. So a very unique perspective on this area that I really want to discuss in further detail, which is fluid loss and hydration. As I'm sure you can imagine, it's very pertinent in the first responder and tactical athlete space. Now, this was not only a very informative conversation, but actually a pretty damn funny one as well. She's hilarious, so I think you're really going to enjoy this. Before we get to the interview, as I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and most importantly, leave a rating. The more five-star ratings we get, the more visible this project becomes for people looking for a podcast like this. And then as I've mentioned, this is a free library of over 300 episodes now for you, the listener, to use personally using your department and all i ask is that you part of this podcast family help by sharing these incredible men and women's stories the more times that it's shared the more opportunities we have to get these solutions to the people who have the problems around the planet so with that being said i introduce to you trisha stavano enjoy Trisha, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> so, first opening question I'd like to start with, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? 
I am in Texas, San Antonio to be specific. Brilliant. Yeah. My uh, my in-laws live in shirts, so not far from oh. me. Okay. Yeah, that's close to where I am. Yeah. Um, so at the very beginning of the story then, where were you born and what was your family dynamic? What did your parents do? Uh, so I was born in San Antonio. Um, I was here for a few years, joined the army, left for a few years, and then uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to retire here. Um, but I was born in San Antonio. My father is a computer programmer, and my mother is a makeup artist. Oh, brilliant. And I did not know how to put on my own eyeshadow <laughs> to this <laughs> So when you say makeup artist, was that in, in films and things or, or cosmetology? No. So she works for Estee Lauder and um a few other lines i can't remember but she's started off mainly with estee lauder and um yeah she's she's a she's incredible um i was a dancer when i was younger um tap jazz ballet that kind of thing and she would always i never looked like a hooker and so i i and i attribute that to her uh, so, <laughs> that's the um, metrics but, <laughs> yeah she no and and I, I she's she's very good so and i i don't want this to sound bad but like she's even been complimented by gay men which you know in the makeup industry you know you, when you're looking at you know that who who encompasses those those slots and it, it is definitely dominated by a lot of gay men and my mother has received compliments by gay men, which is like a, a huge uh, kudos, right? Yeah. Um, gives her a lot of, what do they call it? Uh, her credit score has gone up. But she's like 74 uh, years old. And she's, well, I say she's still doing it. But with this whole uh, coronavirus, COVID, um, you know, with when you put makeup on people, that's obviously very close. And you can't really... Well, she can wear a mask, but you can't. The person that you're putting makeup on can't wear a mask. So this this uh, issue is definitely going to change. I mean, she's almost kind of retiring, but um, but yeah, she's been doing it for a long time. But yeah, she's just uh, you know just a makeup artist, and she'll go to the mall and and work on the on the lines um, with different products. So, but she's very good. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, question um, side question yeah. for that because I've I've witnessed now like in in our town specifically with companies like Amazon where people just aren't having to drive from one place to another to look at clothes, look at, you know, shoes, whatever it is that we can get do so much online now, we can return it if it doesn't fit. Um, and so the dynamic of the American mall seems to be shifting. And then it seems oh, to yeah. be a lot more, you know, which I, I really enjoy. We're going back to to artisan butchers and bakers and breweries and, you know, um, all those kind of personal single-owned uh, businesses. What is she seeing in the department store side? Because it must be interesting from the height when she probably w was young doing it to to where we are now. And very slow. Um, so a lot of a lot of cancellations. So she'll do. She's not an esthetician, but she will do um, facials minus the extractions, I guess. Um, a lot of people will cancel appointments. Um, she uh, it can be very very slow. Um, not as many people go to the mall. I don't go. I used to go to the mall all the time when I was a kid, sixth grade. Um, me and my best friend would always go to the mall. And now I hate, I never go to the mall. I hate going to the mall. Um, but yeah, it's, it's much slower. There's a lot more pressure for them to meet their quota, um, which she's not a salesperson, but she does sell product. Um, but there's a lot more pressure on the, um, 
on the individuals working behind the bay to, to sell. So, and it's, easy, it's a lot of theft too, because it's because of the way that it's set up, it's very easy for people to steal product. And so, um, you know, they have a lot more security and cameras making sure that people don't steal. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a dynamic, an, an area in our world that is changing. And it's interesting to look at this year, you know, what are different industries that are going to permanently change and that and that might be one of them i don't know yeah yeah i don't just remember you know the 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 department store was the go-to place even in england we had one in in the town i grew up next to and you know that was it at christmas time everyone went there to shop and and now it's just it's different and and i hope that the malls become more of a social space rather than a pure commu- consumer space than they they have been for a long time i have good memories from being in the mall when i was in sixth grade yeah, yeah, seems like a lot of American kids do. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, we talked about your parents. What about athletics? When you were in in school ages, I know you ended up becoming a pretty pretty elite athlete yourself. What were you playing back then? When I was in school, I um, hated to sweat and I hated to get dirty, and I mostly did dance. So I was a, I did tap, jazz, ballet. And then I did dance team when I was in high school. And when I went to college, um, I still danced a little bit, but it sort of fell out of me. I guess you could say I lost my rhythm. Um, My body changed and my interests changed. I was going through, you know, the typical things that people go through when they transition from middle school to high school to college. And... um, that I did gymnastics when I was in college, but I was very weak upper body wise. And so I wasn't very good. And uh, then I decided I would, uh, I was going to be a dietitian. And in order to be a dietitian, you need to do an internship. So you can do it in the civilian sector and be poor, or you can join the army and get a paycheck and a guaranteed job for at least four years. So I decided to apply for the army internship. And in doing so, I learned that I had to do a PT test, which involves, you know, two mile runs, sit-ups and push-ups. So in my last, you know, couple years of college, when I was pursuing joining the Army for their internship, I started to run. And I liked it much better than I did when I was in high school, uh, perhaps because there was a goal um, associated with with that. So then I joined the army and my first PT test, I actually maxed it. So, um, so from there I discovered that being dirty and sweating, um, wasn't so bad. Uh, and then I, I started to, to run more and kind of, uh, other sports sort of took off after that. Right. So what is the role in the U S army for a dietitian? What, what were the kind of things that you would you would be doing with your work week? Oh, wow. So, um, okay. So let's say, well, let's go with the, the hospital setting. So in a hospital, the dietitian would let my last job, uh, I was in charge of patient room service. So it's interesting because right now, just to relate, correlate this with current events, um, in the hospital, like where I worked at, they have shut down, um, outpatient food service. So like the dining facility is shut down, but inpatient food service, of course, we have to feed the patient. So that is one significant role for the military dietitian in the field on a deployment. 
And then also in a fixed facility like BAMSI um, to oversee the food service operation. It could be a small facility that only serves 10 patients or like at BAMSI, we would serve, you know, upwards of 200 to 300 patients with a variety of diets. So that doesn't really seem very tactical, but you have to remember that some of your patients are going to be service members. And so, um, and their, their protein needs and, and fluid needs are all, you know, um, high in the fact that it's going to help them recover. So there's a lot of education that goes along with that as well. Um, I did I, one job when I was at Fort Carson. I got to work with the – so the military has what they call a world-class athlete program. So these are individuals that have demonstrated Olympic potential, and they get to um, – basically step aside from their normal job and train to go to the Olympics. So in every other country, um, the uh, their Olympic team is funded by the government, where in the U.S., the Olympic team is funded by McDonald's. I mean, they're, they're funded by private sponsorships. The government doesn't fund them per se. So, but in the U.S., the uh, more of the... Um, dollar or federal dollars go towards the military. So in other countries, they're m- more of their military is part of their Olympic team, I believe. Whereas in the U.S., um, it's a little bit different. So we have um, a program where we allow our military to if they have Olympic potential to take a step away from their job and train to go to the Olympics. So like this year, um, when they did the Olympic trials for the marathon, um, it was kind of unfortunate. If, well, I mean, one, to, to make the Olympic trials is quite a feat in itself, but the number fourth and fifth guy were in the army. Oh, which really? I don't know how they're going to do that. Yeah. I don't know how they're going to do that for next year because, um, they postponed the Olympics, but maybe they'll get another shot. I don't know. Last year we had, I think, a, a, we had a couple of runners. We always have a, a handful of wrestlers. Um, we used to always have a race walker. I'm not quite sure if he is still um, competing. But anyway, a handful of shooters. So we have people that are in the military that are part of the WCAP. Anyway, so my role, I got to work with those athletes and help them. They had not had a dietitian prior uh, a full-time dietitian. So I was able to work with them, um, while I was stationed there. Um, yeah, so that was kind of an atypical army job, but still their army athletes training for the Olympics. So that was a good experience for me. Um, I was in Korea for a year and in that job, um, mostly patient care, although I would help oversee the child development center. So we have CDCs, that have to meet certain nutrition guidelines for feeding the children. And so I would help oversee the menu. Um, same thing with dining facilities. So every installation has a dining facility and they have to serve healthy food. And so they, it's called Go for Green. It's their nutrition uh, awareness campaign, whatever. And so you go and just make sure that they're, you know, they're complying with the Go for Green metrics. Um, outpatient. So we would see, you know, outpatient retirees that were treated at the medical center, um, obviously outpatient service members. Um, we have a very robust 
weight control program. So if they fail their height and weight and body fat percentage, um, they're encouraged to, well, they have to see a dietitian. And so we help them with their um, nutrition plan to help them lose weight. Supplements is another big one um, because a lot of, we have a program called Operation Supplement Safety. And so we help um, help individuals make smart supplement choices because a lot of supplements are contaminated with uh, bad ingredients. So we try to help them make smart decisions if they so choose to rely on us. Brilliant. Well, you, you hit on one point about uh, food in, in hospitals. Obviously, food across the board is very important. But I had a friend of mine, Stephanie, came on a while ago, and she's an ICU nurse. And they have a phenomenon called I, uh, ICU psychosis because there are constantly lights and, and you know sounds from all the machines that they were realizing that these patients weren't getting good quality sleep. Um, and so, you know, that was an interesting thing about trying, them trying to address that issue. And it's something that this could be a running joke. Certainly when I grew up was hospital food was, was bad. Um, how have you seen, um, uh, a, a genesis of actually looking at the nutrition served in hospitals to try and improve the well-being of the patient while they're there? Oh, well, so I, my last job, especially, um, we had a room service operation, so patients could select what they wanted. And it was fairly a, a very broad menu and fairly uh, they had to select food based on the confines of their diet. So this is where it gets tricky. OK, you've got, you know, patient A who is coming into the hospital because he had a heart attack. OK. And at home, he could eat whatever he wanted, hence the heart attack. So then he comes to the hospital and he's on a cardiac diet. And I'm not going to serve him bacon and sausage and a cheeseburger while he's in the hospital because he just had a heart attack and he's on a cardiac diet. And he complains that the food is bad because he wants bacon and sausage and a hamburger and he's not getting it because he's on a cardiac diet and he's in the hospital. So... You have some of those situations that really set us up for failure, even though we're serving excellent food. When you can't get what you want, it's automatically bad. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But I know there's a lot of processed foods I've seen, at least in some of the hospitals that I've I've been around, you know, where it is like a, a ham sandwich and, you know, chocolate pudding. Or, and it doesn't look like the kind of spectrum of color that you would hope would be in in a very nutritional diet i don't know if that's because of the budget that they're given or you know or what it is but it seems like when someone's in a hospital obviously that's because they're not doing well that's a a, yes. a great opportunity to put in good sleep good you know nutrition good hydration um and you know i'm sure there's probably a, a diverse spectrum across the country um but i've you know in the er side especially you know you, what you what you see given knowing the 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 exercise physiology background is like well that doesn't seem like the kind of food that's going to accelerate their healing in this setting yeah I, I can only speak for the hospitals that i've worked at and we always serve the best quality food possible so um we had salmon on the menu which uh, that's my favorite food so if i ever get admitted i'll be eating salmon three times a day um we would have omelets made to order and and the great thing about the food that we served is that it's room service so you have a, a menu and you can select 
you know, you, you don't get just the standard meal, you know, basically, you know, what everyone else is getting, you can, you can choose what you want to, which makes it better. So, um, I think that we did a pretty good job making everything on demand. So that way it's not, you know, it hasn't been sitting there, uh, all day long. So I think, I think we did a good job. I honestly have never been impatient and I'd like to keep it that way. Um, but if I was impatient at our hospital, I think that I would be with, aside from the fact that I like my own food better, just because I like my own food. Um, I, I would, I think that I would feel, I would get fed very well, at least at, at my hospital. I can't speak for other hospitals. Yeah. Well, that's good. Cause I mean, obviously there are some doing it well. I've just, I've seen some that, you know, like I said, the, the food seems to clash with the, <laughs> the philosophy of, of healing and health. So, um, but yeah. again, again, like you said, it could be partly due to the patients selecting that, but, um, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I want to transition to hydration because obviously that's really the core of what we're going to be talking about today. So as a dietitian in the military, uh, either there or, or with your, your running, your, your endurance sports, when, when did you first kind of find yourself exploring that realm? So I started doing triathlons and longer distance events like army 10 miler type, actually when I first joined the army. And I got to tell you, when I first started off, I was at, at an advantage because I am a dietitian and I was at an advantage because I was young. And had those two things not been on my side, I probably would not have done as well. What I know now compared to what I knew then, I'm like, oh my God, how did I even do that? You know, like I went through EFMB, which is the expert field medical badge. Um, it's a two to three week course where you're just you know, like living in misery, doing these medical tasks. And in every great army course ends with a 12 mile road march. And even then, like I don't I, I got through it. I mean, I passed. I got my badge. I'm sure I could have done a lot better. I just I I. I I wish I knew then what I, what I know now, which is why I try so hard to um, teach other people, even little things like um, with sports drinks, the majority of sports drinks out there have inadequate to zero chloride. I didn't know this as a dietitian growing up because it's not something that we're really taught or made aware of. And so I know, you know, I, I wish I, I knew then what I know now, but now that I know what I know now, I try to to um, to teach and educate other people. But, you know, the more you, I mean, it's kind of common sense if you're sweating more you're, and, and there have been some studies that I, I can't really cite off the top of my head, but people do a fairly good job at when they're thirsty drinking Um the, the more you sweat and the more fluid you lose, it's harder to, uh, to match those needs. And if you hear jingling in the back, that's my pug. Um, but um, so, you know, like, I, like if, if people are thirsty, they're going to drink. And these events that you do, races that they do, they have fluids available, which is good and, and bad at the same time because the uneducated athlete um, may over drink and overhydrate, which is also a problem and, and something that I have not ever done. But 
Um, but it, for me, it's been, a, even though I've had the advantage of being a dietitian, so having some awareness and, um, and being young, which is, it's amazing what you can do when you're young, as opposed to when you're older. Um, I, it, yeah, I, I, and then self-taught, um, well, not self-taught. I mean, you know, if you consider schooling self-taught, um, along the way. Brilliant. So let, you hit on sports strength. So let's use that as an anchor point first. Um, I am a proud graduate of UF. Um, that is known, obviously, as the Gators, and Gatorade came from that. Um, I remember really kind of being exposed to it when I used to work in summer camps years ago, and I was a lifeguard. I lifeguarded for a long time. Um, and so, obviously, you're in the sun, so we would use it. It was this funny-looking, you know, bright orange powder, and you'd put it in water, and, and that was it. And I remember back then, I want to say fructose was the go-to sugar in it. Well, now, fast forward, not picking on these companies, but, you know, when you start looking at labels of some of these sports drinks, they are not too dissimilar from some of the Cokes and, you know, um, fountain drinks. So, the, 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 what appears to be that balance has almost shifted a little bit. Me, personally, it's far too sweet if I'm working out and I'm going to get to, you can tear apart my go-to uh, drink in a minute. Um, but, uh, so, tell me about, you know, why some of these sports drinks may not be helping us as much as they claim to. So, okay, when it comes to hydration, most people are fine drinking water. However, when you just drink water, they, they have done various like, uh, stir- surveys, studies, assessments, and people don't drink as much when you just drink water, which is pretty obvious. Um, if something you're going to drink more of something if it tastes good, and and there's a fine balance actually because when you are exercising, so how something tastes when you're just sitting around is different than when you're exercising. So there's a point where something can be too sweet when you're exercising and you're not going to drink as much. So it's important to find that balance. Um, The term sports drink is somewhat broad because when you go and I've done a lot of homework looking at all the drinks that are on the market and oftentimes people think, well, if it's, you know, if it's red or purple or orange, then it's a sports drink. And the color of the product doesn't <laughs> dictate the, <laughs> the what it is. So, like, there are certain drinks that maybe um, people would drink as a sport, like Kool-Aid. I remember my, my dad's a bowler. And he's like, yeah, my bowling buddy wanted me to ask you um, if Kool-Aid was okay. And I'm like, no, it's not. But thank you for asking. So, you know, Kool-Aid where and it. So you have a sports drink is composed of carbohydrate, which we'll come back to that and electrolytes. Okay, so let's look at. So Kool-Aid meets the carbohydrate check. Um, but it doesn't meet the electrolyte check. So when it comes to carbohydrate, a lot of people assume that a sports drink has to have sugar, right? Um, and sugar comes in the form of fructose. So soup, glucose and fructose are your simple sugars. And then you have table sugar, which is sucrose, which is fructose plus Glucose, right? Okay, so sugar, simple sugars, right? And so most sports drinks use simple sugars because of two reasons. One, 
they're cheap. Sugar is 10 cents a pound. So if you think about um, products that use simple sugar, and then however much they are able to sell it for, sugar is really cheap. So by using sugar, they can have a higher profit margin. The other reason that they use sugar, um, fructose especially, is because it's sweet and it's yummy and it tastes like candy because that's what they use in candy. So sports drinks will oftentimes use a mixture of glucose, sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, um, because it's cheap and it's sweet. So they can make a product that's cheap and sweet. Then you're like, well, what else would you use, right? So um, the on the flip side, so those are all simple sugars. You can use a long chain carbohydrate or a complex carbohydrate. So most people, when they hear complex carbohydrate, they think of bread. And you're like, I'm not going to drink bread. Um, and, the, and, and you're not going to drink bread. So rice, right? Okay, so rice is a complex carbohydrate. And you, you can actually... Um, grind rice down and process rice into using it as a carbohydrate in a sports drink. So that's what syrup products does. And I can later we can go into where that all came from. But so you have products and maltodextrin is another one. So maltodextrin is a longer chain carbohydrate. So it has less sugar, but still has carbohydrate in it. Um, so you have your products that use simple sugar because they're cheap and sweet. And then you have products like Cirasport that uses rice because it's a longer chain carbohydrate. Now, rice is 90 cents a pound and sugar is 10 cents a pound. Because, so you can see there's a huge cost difference between using a complex carbohydrate. And it's not necessarily that the rice drink is going to be that much more expensive. We're just going to have less of a profit because we, there's no way we can charge 90% more and and no one would buy it, right? So these drinks that do use just simple sugar are going to have a higher profit margin as opposed to a product that uses rice. So rice, still a carbohydrate, but it's a long chain carbohydrate. So benefits to that is, is it's going to be easier on your stomach. So simple sugar, one super sweet, but it has a high osmolality, which means it has more particles in it, and it's going to be harder on your stomach. So we can go back to the, the carbohydrate part later, but I just wanted to designate you have your simple sugar, which is glucose, fructose, sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, and then you have your complex carbohydrates that very few sports drinks use, which rice would be one of them. So a sports drink is com composed of your carbohydrate and then it's composed of electrolytes. Now, there are really three electrolytes that you lose in your sweat and in diarrhea. Uh, which sweat and diarrhea have a lot in common, um, except diarrhea has double the amount of electrolytes and it smells worse. Um, yeah, so um, the number one electrolyte lost in sweat, do you want to take a guess at what that is? I would, I would have no idea. A lot of people don't realize that it's chloride. So you lose more chloride than you do sodium. Um, so chloride is number one, sodium is number two, and potassium is number three. Um, so when you're looking at your sports drinks, now here's a tricky thing. Sports drinks, except for Sierra Sport, sports drinks don't list the amount of chloride in their product. So typically you have sodium chloride, right? So chloride is the anion and sodium is a cation. And maybe I got that backwards, but either way. So you got sodium chloride and then you use potassium chloride, but a lot of products 
for whatever reason that they choose, um, they'll use sodium bicarbonate or sodium citrate, and they won't use sodium chloride at all, rendering the product very low in chloride, which if you're just going out for like a 30 minute Zumba class, honestly, you're, you're fine. You're, you're going to be good. Um, but for like your tactical athletes, for your firefighters, for your endurance runners and endurance athletes that are sweating a ton and losing a lot of chloride, when you replenish it with a product that doesn't have adequate chloride, you're not going to, one, you're not going to properly rehydrate. You're not going to get the performance benefits that you would from a drink that is properly matched to your sweat losses. And you could potentially put yourself at higher risk for cramping because chloride has a significant role in muscle contraction and allowing the muscle to relax. So if you're deficient in chloride because you've been sweating so much and if your muscle isn't allowed to relax and it stays in the contracted state, then you could be more prone to cramping. Fortunately, we eat a lot of sodium chloride in the form of salt in our diet. So that will compensate for a lot of losses. Um, a lot of people like to use salt tabs and they like to overdo the sodium and that can have a negative effect as well because um, one, salt tabs are generally 99% of the time not necessary because if you take a salt tab without the proper hydration, you're actually further dehydrating yourself and then also, you know, we, like I said, we get plenty of sodium chloride in our diet. And then if you add a sports drink on top of that, you just don't need salt tabs. So I think I went on a tangent there. But anyway, so sports drink, you have your carbohydrate, preferably a longer chain carbohydrate. So it's easier on your stomach and hydrates better. And then you have your electrolytes, sodium chloride, potassium, and then usually citrate is used as a base to con um, correct the acidity. Brilliant. That was well, but, but no, that's great though. It's given us a lot of information because it is about understanding the labels, you know, and seeing through the the um you know the, the commercials basically. And again, not picking on any one brand, but for example, there was no such thing as ED, erectile dysfunction, until a publish uh, publicity company came up with that term. And you know, I've, I've talked about this with a couple of guests. Well, that actually is a terrifying precursor to heart disease, but it's never oh, framed yeah. that way, you know. So um, you know, educating people listening is empowering them just to make good choices. And that's what this is about. They're going to spend money on a product. So make sure you spend money on the right product. Well, and so back to the electrolyte, if you look at various drinks, maybe even the drinks that you're holding in your hand right now, um, and, and sports drinks, especially they like to throw in, they like to make it look like a multivitamin. So people think that the more ingredients in your product, the better. When it comes to a sports drink, that can be further from the truth, okay? So let's take vitamin C, for example. You know how much vitamin C is in your sweat? None. No vitamin C in your sweat. Adding vitamin C to your sports drink is actually not good because when you are sweating a lot and or if you have diarrhea, right, your intestines don't really work as well. They're not as permeable. So one issue actually, you know, talking about when I first started running, I had really bad like runner's poop. Okay. <laughs> so I would go running. It was awful. I would go running and I would have to find the nearest tree. I actually, so funny story. When I was at Fort Gordon, I got arrested for 
Uh, it was conduct of becoming of an officer of public defecation and indecent exposure. And it, because I was running and I, like my stomach just turned inside out and I had to find the nearest tree. And I did, but it clearly was not a very good tree. And I, like the MPs seriously came and handcuffed me, put me in the cop car, took me to the station for that. Yeah. So then I had to have in my medical record, irritable bowel documented so I could get the charges cleared. That's what yeah. you get for running around the, a golf course. No, it was like <laughs> in a neighborhood. It was, I, I should, I should have gone to a golf course. It was like, it was in the neighborhood. I was doing laundry and I was like going for a run in between loads and yeah. So, um, so, oh, where was I going with that? Um, <laughs> We're talking about the, the gut's oh, yeah. permeability. So, <laughs> That's yeah, how it started. So my intestines, and then, so to make the story even funnier, like, so a few years later, like I had this problem for a really long time and it's under control now. So your listeners know, um, but my very first ex-boyfriend was a GI doc. And so we had stayed in touch. And when I was coming to San Antonio, I was like, John, I'm really having like serious issues. I think maybe a colonoscopy would be in order. So I was maybe 29 years old. And he's like, yeah, sure. He was working at Bansy at the time. So he's like, you know, brought me in because I was going to be home. So he set me up for an appointment with a colonoscopy. And uh, one of the guys that was in his little GI, he's like, didn't you used to date that girl? It's like, oh, yeah. You know, so it was it was a nice uh, time to reminisce. And then I woke <laughs> up in the middle of it. So I remember like laying on the table and I, I, and I woke up and I see him. And I'm like, John, I'm awake right now and there's something going on. <laughs> and then I went right back to sleep and everything was fine. Um, so I just had, you know, like it took a while. It takes a while for your body to get used to running and drinking fluids that have carbohydrate in them. And I wasn't a big serious sport person at the time. And so um, getting your body used to running and eating um, takes a lot of practice. So my my body is normalized now. So getting back to the nutrients. So when you run, your intestines are take a beating. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sharing the story, but there are a lot of people out there like, yeah, I used to have bloody poop too. Um, so uh, the more nutrients that you introduce into a sports drink compete for um, entry through the small intestine into the bloodstream. And so glucose acts as a carrier, glucose in the form of rice, glucose in the form of glucose acts as a carrier to carry sodium and fluid from the small intestine into the bloodstream. If you're just sitting on the couch, you know, eating potato chips, watching whatever, you're, you're fine. You're absorbing everything. But when you're severely dehydrated, when you have diarrhea, when you're running, your small intestine blood is shunted to feed your legs. And so absorption of these nutrients is decreased. And so if you add like magnesium and zinc and calcium and vitamin C and all these other ingredients to your sports drink, that's not necessary. It's going to compete as a carrier um, for the nutrients that you do need to help you hydrate. So it's really important, especially for individuals that do have GI issues, to keep their sports drinks as simple as possible. Sodium, chloride, potassium, and then a low osmolality, gentle carbohydrate to help carry those nutrients from your small intestine to the bloodstream. Your sports drink should not look like a multivitamin. Don't get me wrong. Vitamin C is important. Eat a kiwi every day. Get your vitamin C throughout the day. Get your magnesium throughout the day. All these other nutrients. But when it comes to hydration, when it comes to that sports drink that has a very 
acute role in treating hydration immediately, that's when you want it to just have sodium, chloride, potassium, citrate to control the acidity, and a carbohydrate to help carry those nutrients through. Yeah, well, it's interesting you tell the story. Thank you for that very, <laughs> very humorous story. Um, yes. But I had irritable bowel for years and years. Well, that's what they told oh. me. But what it ended up being, and I can tell you because it literally stopped the day I did this, is when I stopped drinking dairy, which I used to drink you know, milk by the pints. I grew up on a farm in England. Um, it went away. So so that was a huge thing for me is coming off that. But then also after I retired just over a year ago, um, I started working out, be, be able to work out in the mornings again. I'm not having to drive to the fire station or, or be driving home. So I actually changed my routine to where I wouldn't eat in the morning until after my workout when I got home. And, and, and again, it made so much sense when I thought about it. You know, you're in this kind of sympathetic state doing these intense workouts. And, and obviously parasympathetic is feed and breed. So if I was putting food in my stomach, like I was, you know, working out before, if it's not fully digested, that's why you're going to get the bloating, the, you know, the cramps, the, you know, whatever distress that you get. And so I have found my performance went through the roof when I was not eating anymore and then working out and, and just trusting that you're not going to die of starvation if you just fast for a, a couple of hours longer and get your workout in first. Yes. So, and that, and that works up to a point. So like this morning, you know, I followed that, that, theory. And I always eat something right before I go to bed so that I know that I've got, you know, my glycogen stores are pretty, pretty loaded for my morning workout. But for longer distance event, events, um, you know, something that's going to be or a training session that's going to exceed three hours. Um, one hour of working out is equivalent to eight hours of fasting. So if you plan on doing a workout much more than an hour, it would benefit the individual to have something beforehand. So that's where it comes to finding the right food that won't upset your stomach. And maybe it's in a liquid form and then the timing. And so through the years, my stomach has been able to tolerate more and more. So depending on, on what I'm doing, I can usually, or, and depending on the, the duration of the workout, but I tell you what, man, like if I eat and then do something and then go work out, inevitably it's gonna be an awesome workout because I've given myself a little bit more fuel and I'll perform so much better. So it's really finding that, it, you know, it. and there's a lot of research, they call it train low, race high. So not referring to altitude, but referring to carbohydrate. So training on low glycogen stores, at certain times throughout the week and then competing on higher glycogen stores. So if you're doing, like if you're preparing for a full Ironman, you're not going to want to do that on an empty stomach. And I guarantee you what you ate the night before isn't going to cut it. So uh, it's, it's, it's uh, fine tuning based on what you're in. I, there was a long time where I wouldn't do any run longer than a certain amount of time because I just couldn't eat during and I had to train if I wanted to do like a marathon or a longer distance triathlon, I wouldn't have to figure that out because there's no way I would be able to do that on an empty stomach. Yeah, well, that's an interesting take as well. My, my workouts are an hour CrossFit. I mean, it's funny people look at CrossFit ah, people. Yeah, so so I'm not a gym rat at all. I like to get in, get it done, and get out. But from the the fire service standpoint, you know, the the structural firefighters, most of us 
are probably going to be working for about an hour, a couple of bottles worth, and you know, then then it kind of de deregulates to or deescalates, excuse me, to more of an overhaul type scenario. However, Jason Ramos and and his his men and women who connected us, um, he's a smoke jumper. You know, his his crew are going to be working for hours and hours and hours. So even within our profession. There's kind of two different approaches, even for when we're on our, our fire ground or, or wildland interface. Now, he and I actually talked about this the other day, and uh, we, we compared like a structural firefighter to like a 5K. Um, so it's, you know, h- higher pace, but shorter time, as opposed to the, you know, wildland firefighter being more of like a ultra marathon where it's at a, perhaps a slower pace, but longer distance or longer duration. So Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. So you got the wildland side, and obviously I want to get to that as well. But I'm, a like I said, an Englishman originally and uh, worked either in Florida or Southern, uh, Southern California. So spent my entire career in brutally hot weather in bunker gear. And that has always been the challenge for me is is cooling, you know, cooling myself down. The exertion has never been a problem but um, you know the the bunker gear is brutal. So, what have you seen on the structural side as far as the effects of um, dehydration using bunker gear? So, I am not super familiar with. I have not worked with any firefighters individually. All of, I've, I'm reading papers and learning and learning through Jason. But I I can't say that I've I've worked with anyone firsthand to give a, a, a good response. Um, however, when you're, but based on the literature and based on what I know about hydration, which is honestly, it can be very similar to let's say a military, a service member in MOP4, um, you know, with a mask and you got your uniform on and you've got the, uh, if MOP4 is uh, your NBC gear. So I don't know how hot it is compared to firefighter gear, probably not quite that hot, but you're going to have an out sweat outputs of maybe a liter to maybe the most that I've read with a firefighter and all their gear is two liters an hour, which is incredible. But if someone is sweating two liters an hour, um, so a couple of things, one is, um, you want to work your way up to that. So if you have never done any, like it, with in the military, you know, part of our um, initial training for everyone is that you put on all, well, you put on a mask, you don't put on all the gear necessarily, and you go into a CS chamber and you, you know, experience little by little what it's like to to have that, that a little bit of gas and your mask on and just to be miserable. So you um, insert misery into your training plan to build yourself up for that longer miserable state so I'm sure throughout your training, you have your gear on, maybe you spend like 30 minutes in it just to get yourself acclimated. And so it's kind of the same thing with the military. You have a acclimatization training where you gradually get yourself, your body used to um, having the higher core temperature and sweating at higher rates. That way, when you're ready to perform at a potentially longer distance or longer distance for a longer time, um, your body is a little bit more acclimatized to it. So there's that. Um, so sweat rates can be anywhere between one to maybe two liters, which is an incredible amount. I mean, if you think of what two liters looks like, that's a ton of fluid just pouring out of your body. So one, you're not going to be able to sustain that activity for much more than an hour or two. Thank goodness. 
Um, Because if you had like two liters every hour, you couldn't, there's no way you could keep up with that hydration. Um, On the flip side, so if you're, obviously, if you're sweating, you know, a liter or two liters an hour, you're going to want to try to match that. Um, Our stomach can't handle much more than a liter per hour. So while you can sweat two liters an hour, you're really only able to drink about a liter per hour, plus or minus based on gastric emptying and other factors that come into play. So it's important. So you're, you're going to, so two things. One, you obviously want to start your shift fully hydrated. That would be, cause you don't, you don't know what's going to um, come your way. And then second, you want to make sure that you fully hydrate after your shift or after the event. Cause obviously if you're fighting a fire, Um, or if you're in the mix of your job, you're not really going to be able to hydrate um, like you would if you were riding a bike and drinking at the same time, right? So um, I don't think you can put a camel back on, you know, when you have your tank and your all your gear, it's just probably not feasible. Um, So when you come back to wanting to rehydrate after those super high fluid losses, there are a couple of things you have to consider. And this is where it goes back to the carbohydrate. Okay. So if you, so when you rehydrate, you want to one, make sure that you rehydrate with a product that's going to replenish the electrolytes that you lost in your sweat. Um, Because of such a significant sweat loss, it's important that you have some carbohydrate to help carry that sodium from your small intestine into your bloodstream. Now, when you use sugar, so we mentioned osmolality and particles a while back, and I'm going to use a firefighter analogy. So picture a room, right? Tons of people in the room. Fire alarm goes off and all the people scramble to the exits. Okay, and it's going to take a while for them to exit because all different people are running in all different directions to get to the exit door. So that's it's going to take a while. So. Then let's say fire alarm goes off, same crowded room, but everyone lines up into a single file line and walks out the door and people are going to exit a lot faster if they're in a single file line, as opposed to all people, you know, trying to run and going crazy running for the door. So that's how carbohydrate is in your stomach. So when you have um, simple sugar and individual particles, they're all running for the exit door, which is your... Uh, sphincter that connects your stomach to your small intestine. Um, And then when you have a long chain carbohydrate, like that's in rice, um, it's going to exit your stomach faster, which means fluid won't hydrate you until it leaves your stomach. So when fluid is in your stomach, it's just in your stomach, but it's not hydrating you. It hydrates you when it leaves your stomach and goes into your small intestine because that's where it it is absorbed from the small intestine into the bloodstream. And then that's where it is able to rehydrate. So, so when you have sweat rates that are extremely high, it's really important to drink a fluid that has a low osmolality. Osmolality is related to particles and particles is largely related to carbohydrate. Simple sugar, high osmolality is going to take longer to leave the stomach. So it's going to take longer to hydrate you as opposed to a lower osmolality from a complex carbohydrate leaves the stomach faster and it's going to able to hydrate that individual 
faster. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And that's probably why people pound the super sugary drinks and then they feel like none of it's being absorbed. Yeah. And they have diarrhea because if it's not being absorbed, it's going to just go straight through. And if you're really dehydrated with that high osmotic load, that would be called hyperosmolar, um, then it's going to go just straight through the small intestine and you're just going to poop it out. And that's going to be even more miserable. Yes. Now, did you like my father analogy? I love the fact there's so much poop in this conversation. Oh, I love <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was, it was a very, a very good um, visual though. Now I want to ask you a question and, and um, you know, not kind of uh, making fun of the person that did this, but the reason I started this podcast is I, st- when I first was looking for good content for our population, especially the fire service, um, there was a question asked of someone that was on a podcast that I found and it, and they, they asked him, does it matter? You know, do you change how much you should have uh, as far as fluid every day based on the size of the person? Now, to me, that made perfect sense. Like, well, of course, yeah. I mean, a 90 pound person is going to need a lot less than a 280 pound person. But the answer that was like, uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Um, you know, I haven't read the research now. So I'm going to ask you, I'm not the expert. I'm going to ask you, is there a difference in hydration requirements between a 90 pound person and a 280 pound person? Absolutely. I thought so too. <laughs> exactly. Common sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, so how, do, how do those two individuals figure out how much they should be drinking every day? Okay. So the equation that I like to use is you take your body weight in pounds and you multiply it by one. <laughs> you got your answer? Uh, and that's how many ounces you should have per day. So If you have a 200 pound person multiplied by one, they would need 200 ounces of fluid a day. I I, first, that would be, so I go with a half an ounce to an ounce per pound of body weight. So a half an ounce would be like on your easy days where you're not exercising, uh, not sweating to an ounce per pound of body weight. So say a 200 pound person, or let's, let's go like, how much do you weigh? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, 170. Okay, so you weigh 170 pounds. So you need, a, let's say, on, a, on a, a good exercise day, you know, 170 ounces a day. So you divide that by 34 ounces and a liter. So roughly five liters on, you know, a per day, five liters a day. And the reason I like that is because five liters a day, you're not going to overhydrate drinking five liters a day. And The worst thing is that you may pee a little too much if if that's more than what you need. But five liters a day is not going to overhydrate you. And if let's say tomorrow is going to be a rough day, it's going to set you up for success tomorrow. Brilliant. Now, I want to get to the history of um, Cerulite in a moment. But one more topic. I'm I'm a big coffee drinker. um, And obviously, we always hear about what coffee and tea dehydrates you. What's No. No? Okay. Thank you. You are my guardian angel. All right. This, this, we can just drop the mic now then. <laughs> no, right, why? Please explain. So, no. Okay. So uh, this is how I like to you describe coffee and alcohol. Coffee or excuse me, caffeine gets rid of fluid that you don't need. Alcohol gets rid of fluid that you do need. Okay. So let's say I'm well hydrated and I drink something with caffeine in it. I'm probably going to go pee. Because I'm well hydrated and it's just getting rid of excess fluid a little bit faster. 
why would triathletes use caffeine during races as an ergogenic aid if it was going to dehydrate them? Huh? Yeah, Wouldn't well, make sense, right? No, not at all. No. So, yeah. Uh, now, what I like to tell – now, I have learned in my military career that you have to be careful what you say because people will take it to the extreme. So what I tell soldiers is – Fine. If you want to go to, so we'll talk quickly about energy drinks. Um, so if you want to go to the shop at, and you want to get an energy drink, you know, if I tell you don't get an energy drink, you're not going to listen to me. Okay. So if you are going to get one, don't get the 24 ounce size, get the smaller one and get a bottle of water with it. So if you're going to drink coffee in the morning, that's cool. Just make sure you also drink water, you know, and, and, and you'll, if, if your urine starts to smell like coffee, maybe maybe you need to balance that out with with more water um i'm a huge fan of they only have this in texas it's called big red zero it's like it's big red is a soda in texas and then they have the diet version like the zero calorie version and um and that's my that's my vice yeah it's pretty pathetic that that's my vice but it is <laughs> um so no i love caffeine like i haven't had any yet today but we're we're getting there um but yeah, I, I mean, caffeine is fine, but just make sure, like when I tell that soldier, yeah, your energy drink, okay, that's fine. I usually give them some parameters because not all energy drinks are alike. Um, but I say, you know, get this energy drink and make sure you get water along with it. Your non-caffeinated fluid should exceed your caffeinated fluid. So if the if you're drinking two liters of coffee a day and one liter of water, maybe we could switch that to two liters of water and one liter of coffee. Sound fair? Yeah. No, that's brilliant. And that, that one I showed you I was drinking, the Focus Aid, it's, uh, yes. you know, it, that's what I find. So so we have the hydration thing, and I'm glad that you kind of smashed that myth because that's, that's another thing that I've learned amongst all the other things. Um, but what I love about that as well is these high-caffeinated ones for our profession that yeah. are, you know, constantly in the sympathetic, constantly like, you know, hypervigilant, it adds to that stress. And, and then they get the big crash as well. And then obviously with higher caffeine intake, there's coming back to the station at 3am after a call and trying to sleep. So I don't know how exposed you are to the nootropics, but I try and limit my caffeine. But the, the, the nootropic kind of focus aid type um, drinks, I find them are just as good, if not better, than than the hyper-sugar, hyper-caffeinated monsters that people are slamming. So the thing about, like, so we'll take Monster um, in particular. So what a lot of people don't appreciate about a lot of these energy drinks is, one, they are not all alike, okay? Monster, the last time I checked, had 200 milligrams of Panax ginseng per eight ounces. That is ridiculously high. Okay. And by the way, there is no such thing as an eight ounce monster. I think they like the minimum serving size is 16 ounces and they have their 24 ounce and 30. I'm sure they have a 32 ounce. So they have roughly um, the last time that it was printed on the label, 200 milligrams of panic ginseng. So a lot of people are like, oh, it's the caffeine. And it's normally not the caffeine. It's normally the other herbals along with that, that make it a, a harmful beverage. So so there's a couple of factors going into coming into play. One, if you are dehydrated, your core temperature is already high, okay? And then if you have a stimulant along with it, you are further increasing your core temperature. So I must be careful when I, you know, caffeine doesn't dehydrate you. However, I wouldn't rely on a high caffeinated drink 
as a source of rehydration. Does that make sense? Yeah, especially if you're going to put on bunker gear and start sweating for an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I especially like I've had a headache the past couple of days and I'm pretty sure it's from like in San Antonio, we went from like fairly, you know, cooler temperatures and like yesterday it was 90. So summer is here. And so, you know, whatever the temperature changes dramatically, I, I always get a, a headache, a little bit of a headache. And usually it's, I can tell it's from just not properly hydrating um, to prepare for the change in temperature. Um, but I would not recommend a caffeine drink as a, you know, if you are dehydrated, high core temperature, and then caffeine on top of that, which is a stimulant and stimulants can further increase core temperature, especially if you've got caffeine along with panic ginseng, along with whatever, you know, concoction that they have in their energy drink, but they're not all alike. I was reading something the other day and they were talking about some guy that died and I may have been a first responder. I don't remember, but anyways, it was from potentially from an energy drink, but they just say energy drink and you can't do that. You can't just say energy drink. Like you just can't say sports drink because they're not all alike. So you have to really like, well, which one was it and what are the ingredients? Oh, it was that one. Okay. Yeah, no, exactly. Go. Exactly. And that's why I kind of advocate for this one because it's, you know, very, very different than the ones you see on most of the grocery store shelves. Um, okay. Well, I want to transition to, uh, the, the genesis of Cerolite. Um, I guess starting with Charlene, is it Rikonin? Yes. Um, so tell me the story because again, the, we have the science and, and obviously that's what we're going to talk about. We have talked about it for the last hour, but as people listen to this show, know as well it's it's the altruistic side as well that this was founded out of um you know a, a charitable organization basically so so tell me about the the roots in bangladesh okay um so i honestly have not i've talked to charlene multiple times on the phone and through email and i haven't i haven't met her face to face yet she um, lives in South Carolina and her daughter who runs the company now lives in Georgia who I've seen multiple times. Um, and then of course I live in Texas, but when I started working for Cerolite or Cerosport or Cero products, um, one thing I wanted to do was to make sure that their story was told because one thing that gravitates people to a company is, is their story and their background. And, uh, it, and it makes people feel um, it, more uh, in touch with the company and, and more, I think more loyalty. And it certainly has had that effect on me as a consumer and also as an employee in itself. So um, it was like in the 1970s, 1980s around there, Charlene was, and I don't know how she got there, but she was working for the International Diarrhea Center um, in Bangladesh, I see International Center for Diarrhea Research in Bangladesh. Um, and they were doing um, some education to the population because cholera, so it's kind of interesting we're talking about this now with pandemics being, you know, covering the news. Um, so cholera was a, a big, big, big problem in the um, 1960s, 1970s. Um, millions and millions of lives lost just from diarrhea. Um, they, I think an adult can die in eight hours from just, I mean, literally explodes. I mean, if you can, and we've all had diarrhea, right? Can you imagine diarrhea so bad that you die from it? I mean, it's ridiculous. And so the treatment originally was IV fluids, right? 
But if you can imagine being in a third world country, giving IV fluids, it's just not practical with the millions of people that were suffering from this. And um, just inserting IVs presents an infection risk and it's expensive. And so before Charlene entered the picture, there were some scientists and physicians that came up with oral rehydration therapy, which is basically just sugar, glucose, I should specify glucose, and salts. And it it sounds very simple, but there's actually a a very specific formula. If you give a patient too much sugar, it will make the diarrhea worse. So it's just the right amount of glucose combined with the salts and they found that they were able to rehydrate them orally. And they saved millions of lives saved. So death rate went from like 50% to 3% just by giving them oral rehydration. And the, I think it was in the 1970s, the Lancet coined this as the, the most significant advancement of our time. And, and it's so, it really is so simple. Um, so then a few years later, um, the International Diarrhea Center was set up. And um, could you imagine working at a diarrhea center? Shitty job. I wouldn't wear the, uh, anyway. uh, the sweatshirt around Walmart, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So they, I, I mean, when I was, I had a, a job, you were asking about my job in the army. One of my jobs, I was at a research institute and I had, I was, I got, you know, conned into doing a poop study. And I, I remember I had to collect like, a little bit of poop and, you know, that was gross, but working at a diarrhea center, um, what are, one of the docs that still represents Cirrusport, I had to, I wanted to find out how much electrolyte was lost in diarrhea. I was like, do you have a paper on that? And like, you know, five minutes later, I get a paper on how much sodium and potassium is in diarrhea. So they've got all the, uh, all the goods anyways. So she was doing some um, education with the, the individuals. And um, during that time, there was a lot of research looking at um, other carbohydrates besides sugar. So sugar is cheap, right? And it's, it's an easy way to get the carbohydrate. Because remember, you need a glucose to carry sodium from the small intestine to the bloodstream. That's really important. And a lot of people don't realize that, but it, especially in a state of dehydration or diarrhea, it, 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 it's critical. It won't work if you just give them salt water. You need glucose to carry sodium from the small intestine to the bloodstream. The problem is that sugar is a high osmolality uh, from the small particles and too much sugar can make the diarrhea worse, okay? So the researchers were like, huh, where can we get carbohydrate that's not sugar? So there was a lot of research being done using um, corn, potato, sorghum, wheat, rice. Um, And they found that by using these long chain carbohydrates instead of sugar, diarrhea decreased by 30%. So Charlene, and um, there were a couple of doctors there at the time that we still work with today, um, decided to come back to the United States and apply the research using rice and develop cerulite. So um, the reason that that she chose rice is mainly because it, it mixes better and it's less allergenic. So, you know, a lot of people are allergic to wheat. Um, corn, there are some products that use corn, but it doesn't really mix up well. Um, but rice is the least allergenic. 
and um, the most palatable when it comes to making a formula. So it was like 1989, 1990, when she came back to the U.S. and started working with the Johns Hopkins physicians on um, the best formula using rice as the carbohydrate and then keeping the sodium and glucose, excuse me, sodium chloride and potassium ratios to match what was being used in the, um, in the ORS. And then a few years later, the World Health Organization um, looked at a lower, so a lower osmolality ORS. So the traditional ORS has 20 grams of glucose and I think 2000 milligrams of sodium and the osmolality is like 300. And so the lower osmolality ORS has 13 grams of glucose. And I wanna say maybe, 1700 milligrams of sodium, but with serolite, and I know I'm throwing numbers out, which when you're listening to numbers, it kind of gets mixed up in your head. But the, the thing about serolite that's so awesome is that serolite has 40 grams of carbohydrate per liter, which is more than the World Health Organization formula, but the osmolality is only 220. And the reason for that is because rice, Rice is a long chain carbohydrate. And so it has a much, much lower weight and a lower osmolality, which means that you can give an individual more nutrition, more carbohydrate, more calories. Um, and, and when I say more calories, like a lot of people are like, oh my God, more calories, that's bad. No, it's not when you're malnourished um, or when you're relying on this as your sole source of nutrition. And honestly, 40 grams of carbohydrate per liter, that's 160 calories per liter. Like that's less than a granola bar. Um, anyways, but, um, but yeah, so like a liter of Cerolite 70 will give you 40 grams of carbohydrate osmolality of like 220. Um, and that carbohydrate, because you have more carbohydrate, you have more glucose able to carry the sodium from the small intestine into the bloodstream. The other really cool thing about rice is that rice is absorbed throughout the entire small intestine. So the small intestines, I think like nine feet long, you've got the jejunum, duodenum, and the ileum, or maybe it's duodenum, jejunum, ileum. Either way, it finishes off with the ileum. And most sugar is only absorbed in the top portion of the small intestine. So sugar is not absorbed in the ileum, where rice is absorbed throughout the entire small intestine to include the ileum, which is, fine. you know, where that makes a huge difference is in individuals that have some of their small intestine missing. So a lot of the patients that we work with are, they, we call them short gut patients, and they have had some of their intestine removed because of cancer or ischemic bowel or whatever, um, uh, ulcerative colitis or so any, any reason why they would have part of their colon or uh, ileum removed. And so the great thing about serolite is that it's absorbed throughout the entire small intestine, which means more hydration power and more absorption um, for those individuals. So, so that's serolite. Okay. So that's the ORS. And then we have our sports drink line. So we use rice in all of our products. Cause I mean, honestly, if you're going to, if rice works in the worst condition, you know, then think about how it's going to work when it's, you're not so bad. Like it, why would we use anything but rice when we find that it's got a low osmolality in it and it hydrates you more superiorly. So the sports drinks, all of our formulas essentially have the exact same ingredients 
It's just different amounts of sodium. So our sports drinks are going to have a little bit more carbohydrate and not as much sodium because as we discussed earlier, diarrhea has twice the amount of salt that your sweat does. So when you're treating diarrhea or extreme dehydration, you would need more sodium than you would if you're just treating sweat losses from, you know, a good workout. Yeah, well, that was that was uh, you know, a great explanation. Yeah. No, but it was pretty brilliant. Even people listening, I know of people who have had part of their their um, GI tract removed from yeah. um, either perforation or you know cancer. So, so yeah, I mean that's good information for for those you know that group as well. But one thing as a paramedic that I always did was you know there's a lot of time tendency to put an IV in everyone that you're transporting into the to the ER. Um, but especially with pediatric patients, smaller children, you know, I would obviously monitor vital signs and everything else and make sure it wasn't, you know, emergent, but would hold off so they could do the oral hydration because a kid, you know, A is a, is a very hard stick. B, my God, you're going to, you know, change their, their mood completely. Um, but, you know, I know that now we're going to, we're going to talk in, on the military side as well. That you're seeing even in the field, um, in the, uh, the Air Force that they're using this in place of IVs wherever possible. Yes. So tell me about that. So, um, we have Serolite 50, 70, and 90. So the 50 and 70 and 90 refers to how much sodium is in it. Um, and typically for most patients, um, with dehydration, even for children, um, we use the Serolite 70. And so it comes in a 50 gram pouch that you mix into a canteen of water or a liter of water. And really that's it. I mean, you just take the 50 gram pouch, you mix it into a liter of water, shake it up. Don't mix it in super cold water because, and one thing I like to not warn people about, but sugar mixes up really nicely because it's sugar. One reason that companies use high fructose corn syrup is because it mixes up really quickly. And so with rice, because it is a complex carbohydrate, if you add it to really cold water, it'll clump. So you want to mix it with room temperature water and give it like a couple of seconds to mix up to dissolve. And then once it's dissolved, you know, you're good to go. Uh, but just appreciate that, you know, when you when you're mixing it up, a complex carbohydrate is going to mix up differently than simple sugar would mix up. Um, but yeah, you just mix it into a liter of water. I personally have used this. So um, every summer I help out with these exterior races here in Texas. And um, so last year we started being a sponsor for them. And so the thing about Xterra is especially like these types of athletes, um, they don't want to stop. And it's really hard when you're mountain biking to drink and mountain bike at the same time because most mountain bikes don't have a place for you to put a water bottle and you kind of are relying on using a camelback. But if you're mountain biking, you're not going to take your hand off the handlebars because that's probably when you're going to crash. So hydrating while you're mountain biking is is, is hard. Um, and so we have a lot of athletes, especially at these Xterra triathlons that will come back like really, really dehydrated. And so um, we started using Cerolite on these Xterra races. And it's just amazing to watch them come back to life and actually be able to finish their race. So they'll have it at the aid station, like halfway through if they're mountain biking and they'll stop and we, like they can tell if the athlete's hurting and then they'll, they'll have them drink the Cerolite and like they'll, they'll come back, they'll be able to finish their race. Um, so that's, that's an, an area where I've actually been able to see it 
firsthand, like people using it and then and able to, to come back and finish. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's the thing with IVs is that, you know, one, they're expensive. It's what, like 20 bucks a bag for the bag and the needle, maybe even more than that. Um, and, you know, even with cancer patients, like if you have cancer and you have really bad diarrhea from the chemo, you don't want to go back to the hospital for an IV to rehydrate. And so the great thing about Cerulite is that you can drink it at home. You can mix it up, put it in the fridge, and then use it to rehydrate at home. And that way you don't have to go back into the hospital for an IV. A bag or a, like a liter of Cerulite costs, I think about two or three dollars as opposed to, you know, an IV. And there are a lot of um, like uh, physicians that can write prescriptions for it and you're able to get your um, health insurance to cover it. But even if not, I mean, three bucks is not bad for, you know, a liter of an oral rehydration solution that'll prevent you from having to go into the hospital. Yeah, I think I think it's fantastic. And like you said, the, the less insult on the body, whether it's a, a three-year-old or a 50-year-old cancer patient, the better. And every time yeah. we do stick them, like you said, as a potential for some sort of infection on top of whatever they're fighting, especially if their immune system's compromised. So I think it's it's a very intelligent way. If you're able to tolerate, you know, oral intake, then why not? Yeah, I always like to say we don't believe in waterboarding. So if they're unconscious, don't give it to them. Okay, that was a good <laughs> side note. I'm glad you put that yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, no problem. But yeah, so I mean, as long as there's no intestinal blockage and they're able to take. And the other thing is that you can use it through a tube feed. So um, obviously mix it up ahead of time, which that's a no brainer, but um, make sure that it fully dissolves. And then um, you can use the Cerulite in tube feeding. Brilliant. So obviously that's got a that's got an application on on the fire ground, especially probably more so in the the wildland environment where they are you know out there for for days and days and days. Um, the EX one, um, I'm wondering if that's probably more more of an application for the structural firefighter and what we call rehab. So every let's say two bottles, so probably about you know an hour's worth of work from from you know being toned out. We're at some point gonna take take at least a jacket off and sit down and cool down and hydrate before we, you know, go back in again. So that's going to be a shorter duration, but probably a lot of fluid loss by that point. Um, so tell me about the EX, EX1 and which kind of special operations groups use that. So EX1 was actually born out of, I think it was a Naval Special Warfare medic. Um, and it's even uh, they, were, they were using Cerulite. This was back maybe 1999, 2000, um, they were using Cerulite, but they were like, you know, Cerulite is a little bit too salty for just hydration maintenance. So they were diluting Cerulite, which is fine. But when we got that feedback, we were like, hey, let's, we'll dilute it for you and we'll flavor it with pomegranate. Okay. So we, um, so Cerulite basic, I mean, Cera Sport EX1 is just Cerulite concentration cut in half and then um, with added flavors. So we use, and all of our flavors are 100% natural. Um, we have uh, Cerulite EX, excuse me, Cerasport EX1 and an orange and a pomegranate and, and a lime flavor. Okay, so and these are powders they, again. Yeah, so the, we it comes in a ready, the lime comes in a ready to drink. We have a couple that come in a ready to drink, but it's not really very practical um, you know, the, the powder, um, transports a lot easier. I mean, obviously you have to bring water with you. Um, but yeah, but they all, they all come in the, it's a, a stick 
that you mix with 16 ounces of water. The cool thing about Cirrusport EX1 is that if you double the concentration of it, voila, it becomes Cirrolite 70. Brilliant. So, because I'm thinking of all the rehabs I've been on, and again, it's it's usually Gatorade that they bring out, and I always would cut it in half, you know, even that, because again, I just can't tolerate it. It's like it's like Coke to me. Um, and then you're cutting the electrolytes in half, and and that's not, and then you can overhydrate because you're not giving them the right concentration of electrolytes. Right. So. Yeah. So, so, but they're also the you know the, the plastic bottles. So they're the the you know the ones they're buying. So, a, I'm sure that's not yeah. that in you know that inexpensive for them. They're probably spending a lot of money buying all those multi packs and all the trash has been thrown away as well. But I'm thinking the application also of the stability of the powder, where it can be in whatever vehicle the department has for their rehab. And like you said, bringing water coolers, understanding. The, hey, mix it in this one. You can have a thing of ice too, and throw some ice cubes in after if you want to cool it down a bit. But um, yeah, you know. But but yeah. So this understanding the science behind this. This isn't a sales pitch. We didn't. You didn't come on because you know we had a discussion about um, uh, the commercial marketing of Cerolite. It was because Jason reached out and was like, hey, this is what you know our wildland people are using, and it's phenomenal. And I'd never even heard of it. So. Um, so yeah, this sounds like it's got such a great application on the wildland side, on the, you know, the, the structural firefighter side, and obviously as well, every other tactical athlete that's just looking to stay hydrated and, you know, able to recover after an incident, whether it's, you know, some riots in some, you know, city or you know, a grueling 12 hour shift in a prison or a dish dispatch center. Um, you know, this is, this is a great opportunity for all of us to, to find yet another product that we can actually rely on and understand the history of it. Like you just told us. Yeah, I like to say use rice in your sports drink, save the sugar for your cookies. There we go. I like that. <laughs> um, so just to kind of, again, help bolster who uses it, when I was looking up, basically pretty much every special operations group that I'm aware of is or has used this product. So it's the SEALs, the Green Berets, the Rangers, um, obviously the Air Force. They have it even in their SEER, SEER um, kits if they go down, the pilots go down. So I just wanted to add that to it. It wasn't even a question that, that if all those groups are trusting this and all those groups of men and women that I've had on the show multiple times, then I think that speaks volumes as well. Yeah, they, it ebbs and flows. Uh, and in the interest of full disclosure, you know, some people, sometimes they do still buy other products. It kind of ebbs and flows as far as, you know, sometimes they choose a product just what is the cheapest. Um, they, they have all used our products in the past and some still use our products. Some will, you know, like they'll they'll just use whatever the cheapest is based on what their funding is like. So, um, yeah. Okay. Well, brilliant. But I mean, regardless, being on that list of, of yes, because I mean they, I, we know those groups have you know nutritionists and trainers and all these people. So they're not they're not bringing you know stuff from the shelves to their men and women. <laughs> that's for sure. No, and they, it's still mandated in all Air Force um, flight jackets and the individual first aid kits have the Cerolite 70. Um, you know, there, there are cheaper products out there, but as I mentioned earlier, um, sugar is 10 cents pound, rice is 90 cents pound. We don't cost 90% more. And so a lot of these cheap products have a huge profit margin because of the fact that they're using sugar. And just be, you know, in... If you're not doing anything really that, you know, strenuous, 
you, you can really, you can drink whatever you want. But when you are in a position where you are doing something extremely strenuous, like our tactical athletes, like our firefighters, like our endurance athletes, especially, you know, I think earlier on when I talked about myself, I mean, I wasn't, you know, doing anything crazy, but my stomach was not tolerating some of those other products. And I know that if I had been using something that was gentler on my stomach, like Searsport, I probably would not have had to have had a colonoscopy as fun as that was. I may have been able to save myself a lot of pain and suffering by using something that was gentler on my stomach. So yeah, and I think the price should should come into it, of course, but there the term false economy has come up so many times in conversations here, whether it's exercise equipment that, you know, falls apart within a year versus spending a little bit more, um, whether it's staffing fire and police and, 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 you know, running skeleton departments and then wondering why they're all dying of, you know, mental and physical diseases, you know, you have to invest in your people. And, and, and so if you're buying the cheapest stuff in all those areas, then you need to take a step back and ask, is this a false economy? Am I getting performance? Am I, am I firefighters falling out, you know, after we're quote unquote hydrating with these sugary drinks? So yeah, I mean, you will want to get an environment where we thrive and we are people that when the shit hits the fan, they don't call any other phone number. They call 911 and they send you on your ambulance, your fire engine, your, your police car, and you're it. So you want that person to be as well-trained and as healthy as possible to facilitate saving that life. Yes. Agreed. Brilliant. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions that I ask um, every every one of my guests. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be something we've discussed today or something completely different. Oh, man. Okay. Well, right now, um, I am reading the Rush Revere series. So I'm a big Rush Limbaugh fan, and I want to learn more about American history and so he has a five book series called Rush Revere, and it's very good. It's it's a it is a children's book, okay. But you're never too old to like a book that has pictures in it. I'm I'm waiting for the pop up version to come up next. But so right now I am reading. Um, that is my my current book selection that I'm reading. Um, I like to read. Um, there's another book that I actually like to recommend called Awareness. And I can't remember who wrote it. I think Anthony DeMello or something like that. Um, I hate reading nutrition books um, just because I, I, I don't know. I, I like to read books that are a little bit out there. Awareness, Anthony DeMello. That's another a good one that I was reading not too long ago. Brilliant. But, um, but yeah, right now I'm reading the Rush Revere series because I want to learn more about American history. Beautiful. And Yeah. All right. What about a movie? Any movies you love? Oh, actually, my favorite series, I was just talking to Jason about this the other day. My favorite TV series, movie series TV uh, is uh, Generation Kill. That's one that I can watch over and over again. You know, there's a lot of good movies, but I watch it once and I'm like, okay, that was good, but I don't really want to watch it again. Generation Kill is one of those where I could watch it over and over again and I'm thoroughly entertained. Beautiful. You know, that's one I haven't seen. I'm totally aware of it, but I've never actually sat down and watched oh, it. So I have to put it to the top great. of my list. Yeah. There's like six of them in it. And it was an HBO thing a few years ago. But yeah, that's that's my favorite right Brilliant. there. I'll look. I just got Hulu recently, so I'll see if it's on there. 
Um, all right. Uh, and then is there a documentary that you've seen that really struck you? I guess that would be a documentary. Huh. Oh, that is a documentary? Uh, yeah. Ah, it's, it's, okay. Well, then you answered yeah. the question then. I'm sorry. I, I, for some reason, I was, I, I've just seen the well, front cover of it. I didn't realize it was a documentary. It is. Um, there may be some fictional aspects to it, but it is a documentary. All the characters in the series are are real. Um, I watched Zombieland 2 not too long ago. That was really good. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Movies, movies, there's a lot of good movies. I just can't. Um, th- there are a couple movies that are all like Beaches is one that will always be my favorite movie. Um, but I hate watching it because it's super sad. I had a best friend that passed away when I was young. And so that movie reminds me of that. And it's always it's one of my favorites that I will never watch because it's super sad. Even thinking about it makes me sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So. So last question before we make sure we, we can find you and obviously where people can find Serolite. What do you do to decompress these days? What do I do? Yes. These days? Um, like these days as opposed to other days? <laughs> <laughs> Any days. Um, well, like these days are a little different. Um, so like this, um, I like, I have learned through this current pandemic that I really don't miss racing all that much. Maybe I got it out of my system. Um, maybe I have enough t-shirts, free t-shirts. Um, but I really enjoy training. So like I went to the park this morning and did a trail run and any kind of physical activity, challenging physical activity. You know, I, I usually run, swim and bike right now. It's been a challenge finding a place to swim um, because for some reason they, they've closed it, Like you can't find a place to swim and uh, they close lakes, they close pools, uh, even though pools are chlorinated and it's like literally the only place you can safely shake someone's hand is inside a pool. Um, all of those are shut down. And so um, my father and I went to a lake yesterday that was still open and I did open water swimming when he was uh, fishing or pretending to fish at least. Um, but yeah, to decompress, usually it like I usually start my day with like some sort of um, like trail running, swimming, biking, something to to get the demons out. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, it is, it is very challenging. They've closed all our beaches here in Florida, our pool in um the subdivision where I live is closed. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's taken away a lot of the positive coping mechanisms that I think people yes. would have naturally used from being in isolation. And then my, my pug, I have a dog, I have a little pug and she, uh, she teaches me what's important in life. So. Yeah, absolutely. I have a dog too. Oh, that's another thing. I totally forgot. And it's kind of, but so Serolite or Serasport or Sera products, we also have what's called Seravet. Um, so dogs get diarrhea too. Um, so we have a product for animals, horses, dogs, cats, even monkeys and exotic birds. Um, if, if they have, um, if they get diarrhea, which is common, honestly, um, I mean, Daisy hasn't gotten diarrhea, but, um, yeah, we have a product for animals. So that's pretty, that's good to know. Fantastic. All right. So first question then, where, we, where can people find Sarah products then? So the internet. <laughs> <laughs> More specifically. Sarah <laughs> uh, um, products. So let me spell that. Um, C-E-R-A-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-X-I-N-C.com. Sarah products, I-N-C.com. Brilliant. 
Fantastic. All right. And then what about yourself? If people want to reach out to you, how do they find you either on the internet or social media? Yes. So um, we are working on having an Ask the Dietitian section on the website. We don't have that yet. So a couple, a, quite a few ways. So one on the website, if you go to the customer support, um, there's a link and, and you want to like ask me a question, that's a super easy way to do it. Also, um, we have a Facebook and Instagram page. And so on the Facebook page, if you send a message to Serosport, it's a Cirrus, we have Serosport Instagram page, excuse me. We have a Serosport Facebook page and a Serolite Facebook page. I don't know why we have both. That was set up before I got there, but whatever. So on the Cirrus, either one, if you send a message to either of those, um, that's another way to get to me. Um, obviously email. So my, I have an email address, <clears throat> excuse me, T S T A V as in Victor, I N O H A at Seroproducts.us, which I know when you throw out a bunch of words on a podcast or a bunch of letters on a podcast, that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Um, but um, but yeah, T-S-T-A-V-I-N-O-H-A at seroproducts.us is another way. Um, so, I mean, I'm on Facebook too. I'm not like super hidden. So if you see a Trisha Stavino and you see a person with a pug, that's probably me. Um, but yeah, but yeah, on our Instagram page, if you send the message that way, I usually get those. Um, if not, they can send it through to me. Brilliant. And I meant to ask you at the beginning, actually, what's the, the ethnic origin of your last name? Ah, yes. So Czechoslovakian or the country formerly known as Czechoslovakia. I think it's split into Czech Republic and Slovakia now. Brilliant. Is that on your dad's side then? Yes, my dad's. Um, I think it's his grandmother maybe was from Czech and his grandfather was from Germany. There's there's Czech German, pretty, pretty fairly recent Czech German. Um, and I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. I say Stavino. Some people say Stavinoha, Stavinoha. <laughs> I just know it's not Stavinho. I've had someone say that. <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah, I can see. <laughs> um, in the army, they used to call me Stav, S-T-A-V. Um, so, yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, Trisha, I want to say thank you so much. It really has been, you know, an education, you know, and I mentioned obviously listening to that that podcast that one day of of someone talking about and it wasn't to ridicule them it was just that i you know that's the mission of this podcast is to find people i'm sure that that guest was was well versed in other areas but find the experts in all the areas and and hydration you know usually is something that people in that realm know something about but with what you guys are doing with sarah you're you're very very well versed not only in the performance world but in the medical world as well so thank you so much for taking the time to not only tell your story and your journey, but bring this product to everyone listening, because I think it's something that everyone needs to, to go and have a look at. I agree. Thank you for having me.